Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Speaking the Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. Speaking the Truth is brought to you by Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown and he will help you. Go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com or call 281-545-5003. So this episode 8 of Speaking the Truth falls in February, which is Black History Month. And Black History Month also brings the movie Black Panther which starts on February 16th. It's a movie that a lot of us have been, uh, of all race, creeds, and colors, have been very excited about about starting, and a lot of ticket sales uh, have been starting, and the movie looks really, really good, and people are taking off work and to, to go see this great movie, and... This movie just gives you goofbumps to of no other movie that I've seen of any kind that everyone that I know has been very excited of this very exciting all black cast rich movie. your attention, go watch Black Panther, February 16th at a theater near you by Marvel Studios. Can't wait. Can't, can't wait. Now, uh, that was free advertisement for a a movie that uh, (laughs) I'm very excited about. Uh, uh, So, I don't own the rights to uh, what you just heard and they're not uh, supporting the show. That's his free advertisement. Um, and while I'm on that topic, uh, you can, uh, if you listen to Speaking the Truth on, on one of your preferred uh, apps, uh, podcast apps, you can find Speaking the Truth on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitches, um, TuneIn, and just about anywhere you can find podcasts, uh, if, if I got, forgot one of them. And, but my favorite place to find it is uh, Radio Public. It's one of the favorite, m- m- the most preferred places to find podcasts. So please uh, like the show, subscribe, and leave a comment if you uh, have an idea about a show or feel that you may want to be interviewed, you have something to, to 
some truth to speak about. Uh, go to speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. So I have received an uh, email and um, from, um, it goes like this, um, it reads like this, Dear Anthony Brown, I'm dating someone new after a breakup with my boyfriend of three years. We have been broken up for nearly four months. I met this great guy, and I feel like I'm cheating on my old boyfriend. I don't want to stop seeing him, but I'm afraid that I may hurt him. I don't want to treat him as a rebound, and I question whether or not if I'm afraid to get close to him because I'm afraid that I may lose him. I have been guilty of being distant to family members for the same reason. How should I deal with this situation? Sincerely, Susan. Now, Susan really isn't her name, but I gave the name Susan to protect her um, identity. As a relationship counselor, I would say that on average, it takes a month for every year, more or less, that you've been with a person that you should be single before you get into a new relationship. So the fact that you've waited four months, I believe that that's a decent amount of time to start something new. So the fact that you may be thinking of the person in the previous relationship, um, if you all have worked everything out and you have closure and you're trying to start anew, I would say that just move slowly and to uh, continue to see the person and make make moments in terms of dates, going places, uh, create moments. Uh, you don't probably want to rush into sex if that's something uh, that if you have sex prior to marriage, uh, you don't want to rush into it, but just to gradually go into that. But I want to warn you about your family relationships. When it comes to relationships, we learn the dynamics from the relationships from the relationships that we have with our family. So if you are not having healthy, intimate relationship with family members, then that could be problematic. So I want to encourage you to have relationships with your family members. Now, we love people to eventually let them go. No one belongs to us. We have to enjoy relationships while and enjoy life while life happens and live life to the fullest. There's an old statement and I don't know where it comes from, but uh, a lot of people quote the statement that we 
have experiences with people for or people coming into our lives for a reason, season, and a lifetime or a lifetime, and you won't actually know what it is, what category they fall into until that relationship is over. And I believe that's very, very true. Each and every relationship is like flowers that's been cut and put into a, vo- to a vase. And you're supposed to enjoy those flowers or those relationships until they die. And they, these relationships may die by by a person moving on, losing contact, falling out with them, which can happen, or a person passing on. And what you have to do is to enjoy these relationships while they're here and have these healthy relationships because at some point they will end. Nothing belongs to us. Everything is given to us to enjoy temporarily by a higher power. So you have to live life to the fullest and and deal with life as it's been rolled out. And when we lose things and lose people in our lives, you get new relationships. You find new relationships and new relationships are formed. And you create new traditions. In my personal life, I have lost a lot of family members in the last five years or so. I lost a couple uncles, an aunt. I've lost my father. I lost my brother. I lost my grandmother. And that's a lot of loss in a lot of five years. And I lost, I had a lot of other similar losses in the last five years. So that's part of getting older. Uh, that's part of, of living life. But one thing I do know that Christmas is not the same, but it doesn't mean that Christmas has to be sad. Thanksgiving is not the same. My day-to-day dealings aren't the same, but I have to create new traditions. I have to create new ways of dealing with life because life is worth living. Life can be exciting and because things have changed in my life and things that changes in our lives, it's not meant for us to dwell in the past and be sad about the past. It's meant for us to grab life like, like, like a bull's horns in our hands and ride this life out and enjoy life. It's so much to life. With all the negativity that thing is going on, with all the shenanigans that's going on in politics and in this country, there's so much positive things about life that we can experience. So that's my advice on that. Uh, and I hope I help answer your question on that. And I'm, I'm uh, Glad you wrote me, and and uh, uh, so if you anyone else has any questions or want my take on things, this is my life coach moment. Uh, as I stated earlier, you can send your letter to uh, dear Anthony at speaking the truth dot ab at gmail dot com. So uh, by this being February. Uh, Black History Month. Uh, it's w- one of my favorite times of year, and partially 
because um, I received a bachelor's, I earned a bachelor's in history. And I've always loved history. I always love the past. And I think that's because I've always been a person to seek the truth. Uh, that being said, um, I've thought about, okay, well, how can I give homage to black history? And one of the things that I thought about, uh, it, it really came to my mind from a conversation that I had uh, with someone, we were talking about slavery. And um, I, th- I think I, 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 you know, it, it was with uh, my interview on Dr. Bailey, with Dr. Bailey. And we had an interview, uh, we touched on uh, something in slavery, I think it was post-traumatic slave syndrome. But I spoke about urban slavery. And urban slavery is something I never heard of until I uh, went to University of Houston and uh, uh, and took a cl- history class, uh, Texas history class, upper level Texas history class from a professor named Dr. Garner Christian. I believe he's retired now, but he's a very, very brilliant historian, very gifted historian. And um, one of the uh, books that... Uh, we had to use was a pamphlet, uh, I think it was an unpublished uh, pamphlet that he had, uh, and it was on the history of Houston, and he had some very good writings in this particular pamphlet. And one thing that we covered was urban slavery in Houston, Texas. And to my surprise, and let me explain what urban slavery is, okay. Urban slavery was a phenomenon uh, where Large cities like Houston, and Houston is, has always well has always been a big city. It was, but it's always been a, a it's not hasn't been a, a, a rural area or area where there was a lot of a lot of of, of agriculture. So it wasn't a farmland. Uh, and actually, Galveston was was the big city compared to Houston until uh, the hurricane in 1900, and so and that pretty much made people. To move this way from Galveston, and there's also a play as well that that uh, took a lot of people out uh, during that particular time. So after the the, uh, the storm of 1900, uh, a lot of people moved up up land, and Houston blew up after that point. Uh, but the port of Houston, uh, the port of Houston, was at one particular time was in Galveston, but it moved to Houston. So. Um, with that being said, during that particular time, um, urban slavery was like the slave didn't live on a plantation. The slave lived on independently in their own own housing in one area where uh, uh, blacks lived, uh, slaves lived, was in the Fourth Ward area, what they call Freeman's Town after slavery was over with. But it was a Fourth Ward area. They had their own homes and. Um, and what slaves would do was they, you know, they had their own skills. Like they were probably a locksmith, or, or, um, or in any other skill a person could do a a chef or or uh, any manual labor. And whatever that labor was, they would go out and they would have customers and. They were the customer would build them. They would build the customer, 
and the money that they made would go to their so-called owner, and the slave would get a portion of of this uh, profit, and they would live off this profit. And it was a very independent and interesting way of 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 living. So this was Houston, and this was liberal, and by Houston be one of the very one of the very uh one one of the very few rural urban places in Texas uh people looked down on it on this and other uh Texans really really was trying to figure out what was going on so um there's an article that I found in Houston History Magazine in 1980 that depicts this uh this phenomenon of urban slavery and um, it it, it uh, talks about uh, the slaves, uh, and I'm going to read an excerpt on it. Uh, gambling, drinking, stealing, and running away, as well as insolence, were the misdemeanors generally attributed to the town slaves. In September 1856, for example, the town marshal discovered some slaves gambling in a private house. As they fled, he shot and wounded one of them. This slave had recently been recaptured nearly 100 miles from Houston. In April 1856, the Telegraph attributed the rising number of burglaries in part of the non-enforcement of laws governing slave conduct. Quote, the first thing that strikes an attentive observer of his arrival in Houston is the immense latitude allowed to Negroes. No matter what time of night you pass through the streets, you are sure to meet parties of Negroes who go where they please, unquestioned and irresponsible. Such a thing as a pass is unheard of, and we doubt if they are even furnished. In certain quarters of the city, there are large congregations of Negroes who hire their own time and who live entirely free from the supervisors of any white man. Speaking candidly, and impartially, there's more isolence among the Negroes of Houston and most careless conduct than in any other city or town south of Mason-Dixon line. So this is, uh, this is uh, uh, something that depicts what was going on and, uh, and the misunderstanding of, of the concept of of urban slavery. So, because of this, Texas, uh, passed a law and, uh, to, to respond to this. And in this law, it called themselves to give Houston order, uh, and it reads like resolved that we unquaffedly discountenance that system which prevails to a considerable extent of Negro mechanics contracting of work and employing journeymen to execute the same. Resolved that we consider no white man who works under or with a Negro contractor as deserving of the support of sympathy of any true mechanic. Resolved that we hardly depreciate the practice adhered 
by some of making contracts with Negro mechanics to carry on work as a contractor. So it was a response where they were making it illegal to make a contract with a Negro, which is a practice that was doing there, uh, that, that they were doing, that was taking place, and make the contract with uh, the owner. So, um, one of the things that um, they felt that, that they were, that Houston was looked at upon as a sanctuary city because they did not understand uh, the the phenomenon of urban slavery, and they felt that uh, a lot of people, a lot of Runaway slaves came to Houston to live, which wasn't really the case. Uh, Houston was a very liberal place then, and is a very liberal place now. Uh, the article goes on to, to say, although fewer than ten free blacks are known to have lived in Houston during the 1850s, the white townspeople apparently felt their presence to be obnoxious. In 18 in May 1855, the alderman passed an ordinance concerning free Negroes requiring free blacks to obtain permission from the board of aldermen to rent a house or dwelling in the city. If permissions were granted, the petitioner had next to obtain a 1,000 bond signed by two responsible citizens. This bond required that he or she keep a good orderly house and he or she further bind themselves not to permit any slave to visit his or her premises. Finally, the free black had to pay the city marshal $2.50 a month for a permit, which was a lot of money back then, I believe. Although state and local laws were harsh, enforcement was only sporadic. The authorities in Houston appeared to have ignored the illegal presence of free blacks in the city. Few freemen applied to the legislature for the necessary permission to remain in Texas after manumission. The few free blacks who lived in Houston in 1850 and 1860 failed even to submit residence petitions, but they remained undisturbed by public authorities. The slave population of this smaller new of the smaller newer Texas town showed considerable vitality in the sense that the numbers of slaves doubled during the 1850s. Most of the increase occurred in the adult age groups and was due to the importation of slaves from elsewhere. The vitality of the slave population then derived more from the decision of slaveholders than from natural increase among the slaves. The purchase of large number of slaves was itself a, itself a statement of the belief that urban slavery was a stable institution and a permanent fixture of Houston's social structure. Those who had committed large amounts of capital to slave purchases, as well as those who aspired to slave ownership, were outraged by Lincoln's elections. Black republicanism endangered not only massive investments, but also a principal me mechanism for conferring prestige in Southern society. Most importantly, it threatened the continuance of white racial harmony. However, politely, the whites of Houston listened to Governor Houston's warning of the coming fire and rivers of blood. The vehemence of their support for the institution of slavery appears in the cascade of votes 
they cast for the audience of, of secession. So that was about um that was that Governor Houston was Sam Houston, which is uh Houston's name, uh Houston was named after afterwards. Uh, so that gives you some uh information about uh urban slavery and how Houston was liberal about urban slavery, and I think that speaks to a lot that Houston has always, also always been a city that has been very culturally diverse from the from its very beginnings uh, by it being a port city. And this is prior to to have been a big city. Uh, Galveston was the biggest bigger city then, and um, uh, so um, and at one time the uh, Capital was in Houston at one time. I don't can't remember if that was during that particular time or not. It may have been. So that's a tidbit on Black history, specifically the uh, history of Houston, and and something I I was I have been very fascinated about. And it's interesting uh, the historical reference to. Uh, sanctuary cities. Uh, Houston is kind of known uh, unofficially as a sanctuary city now, in terms of 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 undocumented uh, human beings that uh, live in in Houston. I would say that there's always been a culture on a value of being a human being of, of life. And that shows that that's been part of our culture in Houston. And it's still part of our culture today where there's a value on all of life. So um, February is a month where a lot of people have been newly hired by a lot of jobs. And so that's something that you have uh, of have experienced. I want to say congratulations to you. And so I've ran across um, there are 10 tips for starting off a job on the right foot. I wanted to share that with you. Uh, this was found in the job sections of the uh, Chronicle. So tip number one, you identify top performers at your level, find out why they're successful at their respective jobs. So if you're, if you're lucky, they will, um, won't feel threatened and they will actually share that with you. Number two, think twice uh, who you align yourself with. Carefully evaluate all the players to determine who management deems top players. Uh, one thing that my mom uh, taught me a long time ago and I think is a pretty wise advice is that try not to openly befriend people who management don't hold in high esteem. Uh, it's not right, but that, you know, that pretty much, that's pretty much good advice birds of flood of a flock together. So you wanted to try to stay straight away from that. Number three, associate with positive people. Stay clear of complainers and avoid gripers to, 
to fellow employers. In short, maintain a positive and upbeat attitude so you're seen in a positive light. And this is true. Um, Negativity is like a cancer, and it spreads. So you want to really kind of stay away from negativity. And if you become this person that just hates your job, then it's time to job seek and not just stay and complain. I've always been a person where if I know when it's the time for me to move on to another department, and when I feel that way, I, I apply for other positions, and I always promote up. I never, I don't think I've ever taken a lateral, if, if I have, but I always promote up when I move. Four, assets expectations of your immediate supervisor. Be sure to pay attention to their directions and suggestions so you, you, so you measure up to expectations. Number five, seek input and assistance when you are stumped. But don't appear needy by asking your manager too many questions. However, if you need help, don't hesitate to ask for it. Number six, try to solve as many problems as possible on your own or with input from colleagues at your own level. If you can solve problems by yourself, better yet, you'll quickly be viewed by peers and management as a self-starter. Seven, keep your supervisor apprised about your work. This is especially important when it comes to the status of your own project. This has long-term value because they are always aware of your input to your team. One thing I think is good is to keep a daily journal of all that you've done, have documentation of that. So if you are ever questioned, if your integrity is ever questioned about what you're doing, you have uh, documentation of that. Eight, arrive early and stay late when necessary. This shows management that you are dedicated and willing to work hard. So the early bird gets the worm. Of course, you've heard that um, that phrase before. Um, so that that's very important. Number nine, communicate with your supervisor, preferably via email. This keeps them informed about your work and accomplishments and documents extensive hours put in to complete a project. And also, I would add that if you have a conversation with the supervisor, follow it up with an email and keep that email in your file. It is very important to keep documentation. This is something I'm reminding myself that I need to really start doing uh, so there won't be any uh, miscommunication because some of these jobs, it, it can be, be a mess uh, with how things are governed. Ten, strive for perfect attendance record, especially during your first two years. And if you are ill, Try to work at home if possible. If not, put in extra time when you return. This tells management personnel that you are, in, you are a serious and dedicated worker and a good team player. So a lot of the jobs nowadays, you are able to uh, work at home. You, you, there, that technology exists. So if you have that, that particular technology or you're able to work at home, that is uh, something that sh should be taken advantage of. But the worst thing 
you probably want to do is to be at the office when you're sick, uh, especially when it's uh, something that's communicable, like the flu or something that happens, because you're going to make everyone else sick, and then your performance is going to be down. So if you're sick, stay stay at home, you know? So these are some tips. Um, these are some tips that I thought that was pretty good that I ran across uh, for the, people that are new on the job. Another thing, and I guess this is the show where I'm just highlighting my state and my city. And um, um, But one thing that I'm very excited about is the announcement of where the location of the uh, dark train or the, uh, uh, the high-speed rail that's supposed to be built connecting Houston to Dallas in 90 minutes. And there's an old mall that's really um, a defunct mall. There's a few stores there left called Northwest Mall. And it's uh, where uh, 610, which is a loop in Houston, and Highway 290, which is a north a Northwest freeway that takes you, that connects Houston to Austin. Um, it's where it, it intersects, and uh, and which is an excellent place to build um, to build a train station. And I and it the goal is to connect other rail from that uh, area to the Bush Intercontinental Airport, which is on the north side, and the Hobby Airport, which is on the southeast side. One thing that I feel that's very important for the future and for the environment is to have more rail in Texas. And I hope this starts cities to improve their rail, in particularly Houston. Uh, Dallas has a pretty good rail system. Uh, Austin has a, and Houston rail system is probably not the best. Houston is a little bit better than what it used to be, but it it's not a wide range rail system. For whatever reason, and I believe it's because of oil and gas, it seems that there's been a lot of powers at B that wants to keep Houstonians in their cars and and never, there have always been obstacles to keep us out of rail, and it's because of oil and gas that's big in Houston. Commuters in Houston rely heavily on driving on the freeways or either buses, commuter buses on HOV lanes rather than having commuter rail. I'm hoping that this is something to the future that will allow, really will allow a person to live in Dallas and work in Houston. It will make the state so much smaller to connect these cities. And I believe that at some point there's a proposed rail line from from Austin to Houston and Austin to Dallas. And this system will make the state so much smaller and will attract more businesses to the state and more conferences and maybe the Olympics and the Super Bowl and and, and things like that, that nature which will really bring people urbanize Texas, especially it being so big, and we would bring people to the state of Texas. And from the, for, for them to see the rich culture, the rich culture of of the multicultural Houston and and this, this, the appreciation that we have for everyone's culture. And that, it doesn't mean that we don't have 
issues uh, that a lot of the cities that we have, we do have some issues, but it's not as problematic as, as, as some of the cities. It's never been as problematic. In fact, um, um, during the time where they've had sit-ins, Houston was one of the cities to to stop that and allow uh, African Americans to eat at the counter counters, so that we would not have that phenomenon in Houston. Houston has always been liberal and a very inviting city. Not to say it's been perfect. Not to say it, it, it hasn't had the problems, and not to say that we don't have a lot to to. Uh, to grow, but uh, but yeah, that's that's about. I'm really selling my city as if <laughs> as if I'm being the poster person for Houston. So, uh, but I just, just w- pointed out some things. I'm I'm very uh, proud of uh, the city that I live in, and I'm very optimistic about the future. So, this is. Um, has been the eighth episode of Speaking the Truth with your host Anthony Brown. Uh, I'm looking forward to have more interviews in the future and, and more topics to talk about. Uh, by the time this uh, episode airs, it will be Mardi Gras, so happy Mardi Gras. Uh, happy Fat Tuesday. Uh, so happy Black History Month. You have been listening to Speaking Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. You can subscribe to my episode. And if you're able to make leave a comment, leave a comment. Uh, you can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, Radio Public, which is the preferred uh, outlets, and just about anywhere you will find uh, podcasts you want to connect with me I, you can reach me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com and if you are interested in life coaching and counseling go to www.socialslifecoachingandcounseling.com or call 281-545-5003 this is Speaking the Truth Anthony Brown signing off